The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Most people's experience, or a lot of people's experience with Christianity is very underwhelming at first. Uh, You go to a church for the first time, you've been thinking about it for a long time, maybe thinking about it for years, and you finally get up enough nerve to go and visit a church, and you get there, and it's not anything like what you expected. You sit down, and you people sing some songs, and the preacher gets up and gives a talk on faith, and he says a lot of great things, but nothing really that captures your attention, a lot of stuff that you don't understand. You don't understand the words that he's using, and You're really disappointed the whole time because you've got almost nothing out of it. In fact, the whole experience was uh, quite upsetting. It was not what you hoped it would be, not what you experienced or thought it could be. And so people kind of, they give up and then they go back again and they give up and they go back. And some people stick around long enough to, to join a church or be a part of the church after they've kicked the tires for about 10 years. And then they decide, okay, well, maybe there is something to it. I'll I'll give my life. I'll be a part of it. But then their whole faith from that point on is a very underwhelming faith. And here's the thing. It doesn't really do much for them. In fact, a lot of people think to themselves, if I just stop going to church altogether and I stopped being a Christian, nothing would really change in my life. It wouldn't make that big of a difference in my life. Because their faith isn't doing anything for them. Their faith isn't exciting. It's not a passionate experience. They have never had an encounter with God. Did you know that you can have an encounter with God? That you can have a a powerful, life-changing, impacting encounter with God that changes you forever and you're never the same? Well, it's true. It does happen. It can happen to you. But there are requirements. There's something that you have to do to be able to have that powerful encounter encounter with the living God. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about three different people, three stories in the Bible of people who had an amazing encounter with God. And some of them, a couple of them didn't know God and weren't followers of God. And one of them was, but each of these three people had this amazing encounter with God, changed their life for the rest of their life. And so we want to look at these three stories and see how we might be able to ourselves experience an encounter with the living God. The writer of the book of Psalms in Psalm 34, 8, gives us this challenge and this invitation. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. All the joys of those who take refuge in him. Taste and see. Take apart. Dive in. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then he talks about it with passion. 
the joy. Oh, if you only knew the great joy that you would experience. If you would dive in and see, only see and behold the goodness of God, how it would incredibly change your life. I think about it like cold pizza, which I happen to have here. This is day-old Little Caesar's pizza. It's not very good to begin with, even when it's hot. And here it is cold. And if this is all you ever have, is cold, old pizza. Okay? Oh. Then that's, that's all you know? Excuse me. <laughs> if that's all you know, then you think, well, that's what it is. That's what life is about, and that's what all I can ever expect, that's what all I can ever have, and so that's all you ever take part in. Cold Day-old pizza, that's the pinnacle of all your experiences and all that you ever get to feel and take in and be a part of an experience is just cold pizza. And other people talk about other things, but you don't know anything about that because you haven't had that. You haven't experienced that. They talk about their great faith and they talk about Jesus like a relationship and all these wonderful things that they have with God But you don't know anything about that because all you've ever had is this cold, stale pizza. It isn't until you taste a hot, sizzling steak that you know there is anything different out there. And then, I'm not going to take a bite of it. It looks perfect, delicious, thick, perfectly cooked steak. Then when you take a bite of this and you chew on it and those juices go down the back of your throat and you go, oh, this is so good. This is so delicious. I want more of this. Never once do you ever say, gee, I wish we had the cold pizza. You never go back to that. And you realize that what you had before was absolutely nothing compared to what you have now in this wonderful, delicious, perfectly cooked porterhouse, triple A, the best steak. And I think that's how people go through life with their faith. They've got cold pizza faith. And they don't know that there's hot, steaming, delicious steak faith. But it requires something from us. Let's begin with the story in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. The story is about a guy by the name of Nahum, uh, Naaman, and uh, that's probably something closer to Nachmah, but since you're not Hebrew, we'll just go with Naaman, okay? And uh, you need to get it right, because if you're a Christian, you're going to be in heaven someday, he's going to be there, and you don't want to look like an idiot American who can't pronounce his name, right? 
don't even know where his book is or where his story was, how insignificant it was. So you're getting to know this morning. But rather than say Nachma, we'll just say Neiman. But remember that, okay? So here's a guy, and he is the commander of the Syrian army. He's a Syrian. He's not a Hebrew. He's not a part of the Israelite community. He's an outsider. He's a Gentile. He's their enemy, all right? He is a part of Babylon. So you know about that, okay? Syrian Babylon. And he uh, was the commander of their army, and he had great successes. Success after success. He was a powerful warrior, brilliant, smart strategist, rich, and famous. But then we read in the story, verse 1, but though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. He had leprosy. And so in his household, as he got these different conquests of different nations, they conquered Israel, and he took from them, uh, usually what they kill the husband and take the, the women and children and bring them into slavery. And so he has in his home a slave girl who's helping his wife. And she says to Naaman's wife, there's a prophet in, in Samaria And if only he would go and see the prophet, he would be cured of his leprosy. And so he decides to go to Samaria to seek this prophet out and find out if he can uh, heal him. And so first he goes to his king, which is probably a smart thing to do. If you're going to go to a warring enemy nation, you should probably get some letters in advance to make sure that they don't start war with you as you go over there. And so he gets a letter. He goes to the king and he says, I want to go to Samaria. There's a prophet there I've heard that can heal leprosy. And the king had such admiration and love for Naaman. He said, yes, go and I will send a letter ahead letting the other king of Israel know of our intent. And so he gives them the letter and he goes off to the king of Israel. Now the king of Israel at this time is a wicked king. Jehoram is his name. This guy is so wicked. He was considered on the list of the wicked, terrible kings of Israel. He's one of the few that was able to unite the two kingdoms together. So he reigned over Judah and Israel. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know about uh, Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel were the two husband and wife. Two evil king and wife and queen who conspired together to destroy Israel, God's people. Well, Jezebel had a daughter, and she married this king, Jehoram. All right? So the wickedness you can see going through the family line here. And this, guy, this is the king of Israel. This guy, when he came to power, his father appointed, he was the oldest of all his siblings. His father appointed him as the next ruling king. He took over both kingdoms and then murdered all six of his siblings so they wouldn't threaten his kingdom. Do you think you have a bad family? And so he goes to the king of Jehoram, the king of Israel and Judah, and he says, I am here to 
see the prophet who will cure me of this leprosy. And Jehoram tears his clothes. It's a sign of blasphemy. Okay, He's a religious, faking kind of person. And he, so he, he thinks that's blasphemy, that you would come to me to be healed. And tears his clothes and says, no, go away. I can't heal people. I mean, who, who am I? What do you think I am? I can't do this. What kind of a request is that? Only God can heal people. And Elisha gets word of the message. Elisha's the prophet. And so he sends a message back to the king. And this is what his message, verse 8, he says, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. Now, he wasn't bragging about himself. It was a rebuke against the king, an ungodly king who didn't follow the ways of God or honor the ways of Yahweh God. And so Elisha is rebuking him with this response, but says, hey, bring him to me. God will heal him, and then all of the land will see who the true, true king of kings is. And so his, his, this is a rebuke to the king. It is also a prophetic sign of Jesus. It's a prophecy about Jesus, which we'll get to in a moment. You'll see how the two connect together. So verse 9, So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha was there. Instead of coming out to meet him, he sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. Naaman received this message and he was furious. He was furious for a lot of reasons. One, that he wouldn't come out himself and address him. I mean, being such a high and mighty official person of a neighboring kingdom, he deserved at least enough respect that you'd come out and tell him face to face what the message is. But Elisha disrespects him, doesn't go out and give him face to face. And then he tells him to go and do something that is absolutely humiliating. Go and wash in the Jordan River. The Jordan River is a river that picks up a lot of of sand and sediment as it moves along. And so you can see not even an inch into that thing. It is muddy, dirty water. Okay, that's the Jordan River. That's the, you know, the river in Israel. And And so he says, hey, why would I go and wash in the Jordan River when we have two rivers in Damascus that are perfectly crystal clear? Clean, beautiful rivers. You want me to go wash in this dirty, muddy river. You have disrespected me. You have asked me to humiliate myself. And so he says, forget it. No way, I'm not going to do any of that. And he gets all his stuff and begins to leave. On his way out, his servants said to him, Master, Master, please, would you reconsider? If the prophet had asked you to do something very difficult, like go and capture 10,000 men or go and take something and carry it up to the top, something difficult, you would have done it. You would have been right after it. 
But he asks you to do a simple thing. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe this is God's way of dealing with you. And so he listens to his servants and his advisors. And he goes to the Jordan River. And then he does the unthinkable. He strips down completely down to what you would call underwear or or possibly even completely naked, walks into the Jordan River to bathe, completely submerged. He does that seven times. All the way in washing, all the way out, back in. Seven times as Elisha told him to do so. And on the seventh time as he emerged out of the water... He had no leprosy. In fact, God didn't just take away the leprosy. It says there in the text that he actually gave him new skin. He had the skin of a young boy. Totally healed him, took away the leprosy. And he comes out and saw Naaman is just floored. He can't believe it. He he falls down to worship God and and to thank God for his healing. And he goes back to Elisha. To give him the report. He goes to Elisha and he says. I know now that there is only one true God in the whole world. And it is the God of Israel. And that's whom I will serve for the rest of my life. Can I give you gifts for what you have done for me? And so he offers him. You know about a million bucks. Some nice clothes. A lot of money. Tons of gold and silver. And Elisha says no. I don't want any of that. I just want you to have a relationship with Almighty God. And so, verse 17, Naaman said, All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it home back, back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offer- offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the God of Ramon to worship, worship there, and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow also. At first, this looks like some kind of compromise. He's been healed, set free, gives his life to following God and Becomes a follower of God, committed to God, and and then says, but wait, when I go back to the temple, this other foreign God, excuse me when I compromise and bow. And that's not, not at all the case. His heart was sincere. He gathered up the soil so he could go back home and have soil from Israel and create an altar there unto the living God. But because he was a Syrian and he served an evil king and they worshiped demons... That he had to go into the temple with his king and bow down. But in his heart, he wasn't worshiping that idol, that evil, demonic God. He was still staying true to the living God. And so Elijah says this to him. Go in peace. In other words, it's okay. God understands your heart. He sees it. you're sincere. Go in peace. And so Naaman started home again. Now, if that's all there was to the story, then we'd say, wow, that's a cool story. That's really neat how 
awesome how God healed him like that and that'd be the end of it. But that isn't the end of the story. 876 years go by. 876 years and Naaman is just a story now in the Old Testament. And then a man comes along by the name of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, Luke tells about the story of Jesus and the beginning of his ministry. The first part of the chapter is about his temptation in the wilderness. And he skips all the part about going and, and his baptism and seeing all the disciples. John covers that. Luke skips it and goes right to the synagogue. And Jesus was at the synagogue and they always asked him to read the scriptures. That seems strange because Jesus wasn't considered yet a rabbi. He was too young and other rabbis were probably leading the synagogue, but they allowed him to, to read the scriptures because Jesus was some kind of freak prodigy. All right, so he's, at 12, he, would, he knew more scriptures than all the rabbis and he, would, he left his parents and was with them and was explaining the whole Bible to them like, like he had written it or some crazy thing. And, and so every time he got up to, to read the scriptures, he would speak with such authority and power. It mystified everybody. And so they allowed him to read the scriptures. And so he pulls the book of Isaiah out. He reads a passage of Isaiah. And he says to everybody there, this now has been fulfilled right before your eyes. In other words, he's saying, I am the guy Eli. Isaiah is talking about. Now, their response is somewhat humorous. They essentially began to whisper to each other, oh, yeah, right, and like, I'm Joan of Arc. Uh, isn't this Joseph's boy? I mean, he's, he's, this, is not, this is not what Isaiah was talking about. This is, come on. And so Jesus hearing their whispers and knowing their heart, he responds to them. Verse 24. He says, but I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Okay, we get that. So he explains what he means by saying, I am here to fulfill what Isaiah says. Here's his explanation. Verse 25. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel... In the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one he healed was Naaman, a Syrian. And they were furious. It's fine in this case, he's going to say he's a fulfillment of Isaiah, that's one thing. But when he said this, they were furious. They grabbed him like a group of people in a mob, carried him to the edge of the town, and they were going to throw him off the cliff and stone him to death. But it says, Luke tells us that it was not Jesus' time, so he 
slipped through the crowd and they weren't able to kill him. What got them so enraged that Jesus would clarify his ministry with the healing of Naaman 875 years ago? He was essentially saying to this group of Jews, these God's elect people in the synagogue, their church, saying God loved Naaman, a Syrian. Your enemy, somebody who's outside the nation of Israel, God loved him and he's in heaven. Naaman had an encounter with the living God. And for them, that was blasphemy. That cannot be. That does not happen. You have made a mistake in interpreting what happened with Naaman. He was a Syrian. He got healed, yes, but it wasn't because God loved him and it wasn't because he was a believer. Jesus said, oh, yes, it was. Because the gospel, what I'm here to do, salvation, is for anyone. Anyone so much that you would take an evil Syrian who prior to this occasion was worshiping demons. God took him, accepted him, loved him. Naaman gave his life to God and followed him, was devoted to him for the rest of his life with God in paradise. He had an encounter with the living God. Jesus was saying that his ministry was opening the door to anyone can have an encounter with the living God. Anyone, anyone. If. Because not everyone who comes to God has this amazing encounter with God like Naaman did. So there's an if. What was so special about Naaman? Well, he was desperate. Anyone who has an illness that can't be cured knows this to be true. All of your friends, all of your acquaintances, and people you don't even know are offering you their cure. So if anytime you get up and say, I have something wrong with me physically and there's no cure, there is at least one person in that crowd who has the cure. And they come forward and they tell it to you. And so why would... You, you get jaded after a while. I mean, I've had people say to me, not too recent, uh, kind of recent, that, that uh, what I'm dealing with, what I have, that if I just drink water, it'll go away. But I've heard everything under the sun, you know. Because when the doctors say there is no cure, then, you know, I read something in Time magazine. Here, try this. Eat dirt or whatever. And you kind of get jaded to all these so-called cures, But here's this Israeli slave girl. I mean, she's a woman. That's one thing. Women don't talk to men in this time frame. Women have no 
no say in society. So if she's a woman, she's a child, and she's a slave girl from a warring nation. Why in the world would he consider her advice? Why in the world would he even take that? There's some prophet in Samaria. You go to him, you'll be healed. Why would he give that the time of day? Why would he listen? Unless he was absolutely desperate to be free from the leprosy. Everything else in his life was going his way. Rich and famous and talented, everything he ever wanted, but that leprosy was ruining all of it. And he was desperate. How many people come to God because they're so desperate? They're going through divorce, they're they're, they're one relationship that they just invested everything into and there's a, a terrible divorce and a split in that relationship and so they're desperate and so they go to a church. Go to a church looking for God, trying to find him there, trying to find hope, trying to find something and they go and they get a bunch of songs, a talk they don't understand and they're devastated. It doesn't do anything for them. It doesn't do what they thought it would do. And they're disappointed. Or somebody's got a a sickness or some serious financial trouble and they're desperate. They're desperate for something to happen. And they finally say, okay, I'll turn to God. God, you know, if you're out there, if you're real, if there's a real God in the world, I'll go to a church where I'll find this one. There's one by my house. It's on Waller Road. We'll just go there and, and just give God a shot. Just try it, everything else. And they're desperate. But being desperate is not enough. That's the beginning. You see, the second thing about Naaman that made him stand out among everyone was the fact that he was willing to humble himself. He was desperate. And he allowed himself to be humbled. Listen, if you have leprosy, What is the one thing you never want to do? Just take off your clothes. That's the one thing you never want to do. That is total and utter humiliation. You take off all your clothes. So for all the people under you, you're this powerful commander and all these soldiers and all these guys that look up to you and follow you. And now you're going to undress in front of them and they're going to see all of your open sores, all of your sickness and your disease and your ugliness. You're going to bear yourself before them. It's one thing to be vulnerable, but being vulnerable and having leprosy is just beyond the pale. And that's why I think he rejected it at first. I mean, this is, a, this is a, a tough guy, a warrior, a fighter, the best one they had. And, you know, you tell him to go and kill 20 men to get his right to be healed, he would have done it in a second. I can do that. But no, God said, Naaman, if you want to be cleansed of leprosy, humiliate yourself. Humble yourself. 
before me. And his servants talked him into doing it. People are desperate, but they're not willing to humble themselves. They're desperate. I mean, they need something from God. Like I said, they, they, they have a broken relationship or some tragedy or some hardship in their life. They're desperate for God, but they're not willing to humble themselves. And so when God offers them an encounter with him, they walk away sad and empty and without anything because they weren't willing to humble themselves. And the third thing that made Naaman stand out is that he was willing to go all in. He didn't just go to the edge of the Jordan and kick around some water and say, oh, this is so stupid. Why are they asking me to do this? I can't believe it. He didn't go and dip down three times or two or six. He did exactly as Elisha told him. He bathed seven times. He went all in. 100% took off all of his armor, took off all of his clothes, bare naked, humiliated before all of his men and marched right into that river 100%, all in, all the way. He went down all the way. And because he was willing to do these things, because he was desperate, because he was willing to humble himself, because he was willing to go all in, he had this encounter with God. The living God met him there in the Jordan River and gave him new skin. I guess from one perspective, you could say made his life perfect, complete. Because now he had it all. Truly, he had it all. See, that total humility says, I need you, God. I want you, God. And I'll do what you say. That's where many people fall short. Many Christians even have this lackluster, lame, limp relationship, or if that's what you want to call it, experience with God. Because they're only willing to go so far with him. And not willing to fully obey. They're not willing to go all in. And so they have this weak, lame experience. And every time they go to a church anywhere, it doesn't matter. They get very little out of it. And their faith means very little to them. And it has a very weak impact in their life. Very little difference in their life. There's not a whole lot of difference between them and those who don't even know God. Because they're not willing To go all in and obey. If Naaman had gone home angry, didn't listen to these advisors, counselors, these servants, he, he just remained angry and went home. He would have died a leper. His story probably wouldn't have been written in the Old Testament. Nobody would know about him. He wouldn't have gone to heaven. He would not have known the true and living God. And I wonder how many people 
Go to a church somewhere. And all them may, they want to find God and they're seeking God, but because they're not willing to humble themselves, they're not willing to say, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. I'm willing to obey what you say. Because they're not willing to do that, they go away. Never again to grace the doors of another church. Maybe some of you this morning are on the sidelines of your faith. You've never really gone in, all in. And maybe it's been like that for a decade or more, I don't know, but you, you've just gone far enough to be comfortable, but not humility. Always hanging back, always holding back, having that doubt and that fear and not being able to trust, not being able to go all in. So you're a Christian, but because you've never had an encounter with God, you're happy with the scraps, you're happy with the day old pizza, you you never know what it's like to really taste the goodness of the Lord. And when people talk about their encounter with God and they have tears and joy overflowing, you don't know what that is. Then like Elisha the prophet, I stand here this morning and I invite you to go down into the Jordan. And they have an encounter with God. So many Christians I see, and it's sad. Because the farthest they ever get is warming a seat. That's all they ever do. And it's sad because there's so much more. So I want to ask you this morning, are you willing to humble yourself in the sight of God and say to him this morning, I'm all in. Naaman can do what he did I can certainly go all in myself. And it's up to each one of us to decide. But if that's you this morning, and all the time I'm talking, you you resonate with that, you understand it, you, you feel like that's you. You're thinking to yourself, he's talking about me. Then I want to encourage you this morning, a step of faith of going into the Jordan River. I mean, we're in Washington, right? So you're not literally going into the river. But as a step of faith, you take baby steps. Stand up this morning. 
just stand up right where you're at. Just everybody's sitting down. Okay, maybe you're the one person who stands up and everybody is sitting down. So you're the one guy who says, one woman who says, yes, I'll be humble enough because I want an encounter with God. I don't want God to pass me by today. Stand up. Okay, there's more than one. There's a few of us. Let's pray this morning. And those of you that are standing, I want to offer you a chance to just pray in your own mind, in your own heart, and pour out your heart to God and say, God, I'm desperate for that encounter with you today, and that's why I'm standing up. I'll pause for one second here because I know there's somebody here who's considering this and there's a war inside of you and you want to, but you're so overcome with all kinds of issues. But I want to encourage you this morning, don't miss this because if you do, it may be another 10 years before you get another chance. Don't go a decade missing out. Father in heaven, you see every person standing here, Lord, and you see every heart, and you know who's sincere and who is not. You're able to cut to the very heart and the very core of our souls. You know all about us. Lord, we're standing here today as though we are walking down into the Jordan River, and we're saying, Lord God, here I am. All of me, all of my sin, all of my failures, all of my shortcomings, my unbelief, Every wicked thing that is in me, every, every sin, every shortcoming, Lord, I stand here and I walk into that Jordan River and I'm praying, Lord, with all my might that you would wash away all of my wickedness and my sin, that you would heal me, you would touch me, and I would have an encounter with you. Lord, don't pass me by, don't pass me by, don't pass me by, don't pass me by. Lord, don't leave me out. Though the whole world can get what they need, Lord, don't pass me by. Hear my cry. Touch my heart. I want to receive all that you have for me today. Lord, I'm coming home. Coming home to you to be yours and yours alone. Lord, I want to believe. I choose to believe. Help me to have belief and faith. Help me to obey. Or when I want to do my own thing, help me to obey your ways and your will. May this be the beginning of a whole new life for me. Never again the way I was, never the same. Something's changed today. Something's new. Something's different today. I taste and see how good you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.